Hey everybody, it's Jumping Jay. And before we jump in today's episode of 80s Wrestling, the podcast with our very special guest, former WWF host and interviewer, Mr. Craig DeGeorge, I just wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Instagram account, Wrestling Then and Now. If you're a fan of the golden era of wrestling or any era of wrestling, you want to do yourself a favor jump on the Instagram and follow Wrestling Then and Now for some of the greatest photos of wrestling from every era. Things that you won't find anywhere else. Again, that's Wrestling Then and Now only on Instagram. gentlemen welcome back to another episode of 80s wrestling the podcast the only show where the two hosts exclusively get their haircut at brutus's barber shop my name is jumpin jay and as always i'm joined by the unmasked superstar mr tommy fiero <laughs> your introductions are awesome the unmasked superstar i love it man Jay, I'm excited for this episode today, man. Really excited. Uh, real quickly, I want to make mention before we bring on our guest this week, and it's, it's a really good one. Last week, we were talking about we had discovered that we broke the top 25 for uh, the most listened to pro wrestling podcast in the world. We were number 24 last week. Jay, we jumped up to number 12 last week. We surpassed, one day, we surpassed the WWE's New Day podcast. I want to talk all about that later in the episode, but yeah, we're as high as number 12 uh, in the top 250 wrestling podcast in America, and uh, I, I'm just blown away by it. And, and I'm, I'm looking to crack the top 10 this week because this week's a big one, Jay. If you are a fan of 80s wrestling, which you are because you're listening to this podcast, the time frame that this man was in the WWF is unquestionably the T-H-E golden era of the WWF former WWF announcer Craig DeGeorge is joining us on the show in just a second and I'm excited Jay because Craig is going to be our next guest at Monday Night Virtual on Monday March the 22nd along with Cowboy Bob Orton I've been trying to get Craig to do an appearance with us for a couple of years and uh, it, for the live 80s wrestling cons that we do, but our schedules didn't, didn't match up when I was doing the conventions. He was, you know, uh, announcing baseball. So it just it didn't work out. But now that we have virtuals, our schedules were, well, his schedule was more flexible because he was able to, to do it. So we, we have him after two years of trying to get him and it's going to be his first actual wrestling signing appearance in decades and joining the show right now is uh the man himself mr craig the george craig how are you hey that's a lot of pressure to try and get us to the top 10 here with this interview that's you know that's usually reserved for a hogan you know george Steele back in the day but I'll, I'll do my best good to be with you guys yeah, great to be with you man and uh we have a lot of stuff to talk to you about here on on the podcast this week and, and, and I guess we could start off by uh, just 
updating the fans on what you're doing today. I mean, I know what you're doing now, but for fans out there that just remember Craig DeGeorge from the live event centers back in the 80s or standing up on the, the podium interviewing Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, Andre the Giant, et cetera, uh, what, what's Craig DeGeorge doing in 2021? Well, that's, a, that's good stuff there. I was, I was in uh, West Virginia. We can go in this during the interview, and how I got that job would be interesting. But uh, for the last uh, almost two decades, uh, I've been working on the game scene with the, with the Miami, then Florida Marlins, and the Florida Panthers hockey team on the Fox Sports Florida, soon-to-be Valley Sports uh, broadcast. I used to also work at the NBC station here in uh, Miami, and uh, over the few years I did, did some Notre Dame football games for NBC, the XFL, I worked for Vince a second time, I did the UFL with Doug Flutie. Uh, almost every league that, that has gone out of business I have been associated with. <laughs> like the uh, Roller Hockey International on ESPN put that out of business. Uh, some some uh, fight leagues, as, as a matter of fact, you, I think it was called the UFL. No, the, um, it was a, a mixed martial arts league. The name just escapes me. That lasted a year. I filled in a few times on that. So anyway, but uh, I'm, I'm the face that you see, the voice, the host, sometimes play-by-play play down here in South Florida. Nice, nice. Uh, I, I guess, Craig, the, the, we can start off with the, the beginning. How did you break into the WWF back in 1987? Did you have interest in getting involved with pro wrestling was something that just, you know, through your announcing and just, it just, it just came to you. And what was the, the starting process of you entering the world of professional wrestling? Sure. It kind of came out of the blue for me. And now let me, let me back up though. As a youngster, uh, like many of us, and I'm talking in the seventies when I was sort of growing up watching TV, getting into sports, I would always watch the, uh, then it was called the WWWF wrestling on channel nine WR in New York. And, and really, I, I just liked watching Vince, his interviews, uh, the, the, the craziness of wrestling. Even though I was more of a meat and potato sports guy, I enjoyed watching it. I wasn't the biggest, craziest fan. It wasn't must-see, but if I, I, would, I would often flip in. I always liked watching the announcers in all sports, and I enjoyed the theater uh, and the entertainment value of wrestling as a youngster. So I had that kind of background coming in now. Uh, to make a long story short, when I was in college, and this is a good lesson for a lot of people, I think, is I interned, I got an internship at Madison Square Garden Network, and I'll show you how this ties in in a second. But I didn't get paid. I went in every day, took the train. They paid for my train. That was it. And I went in from basically from 9 to 5 for the entire summer, you know, which made it difficult when your friends are out partying and having fun, and, and you're having to get up at, at 7 in the morning and catch a train to the city and so on. Uh, but I did it every day, and I met some people there. And one of the guys I met was a guy named Phil Harmon. He was the executive vice president of Madison Square Garden Network. So fast forward, I get a job after Syracuse University. I get a job in, in West Virginia, in the, I mean the middle of nowhere. If anybody's ever been in Oak Hill, Beckley, Bluefield, I'd be surprised listening, but maybe there are a few. Uh, and I was the sports director of the ABC station there. And about 10 or 11 months into that job, I got a call from Phil Harmon. And he said, would you be interested in working for the for Titan Sports World Wrestling Federation? Nothing I ever thought of. Uh, honestly, they could have hired uh, 100 guys. Uh, but I made a connection when I didn't know it, uh, going in every day and doing my, my thing on people at MSG Network and um, sent them a tape, went to meet with Vince. I think, guys, they were looking for more of a, if you will, a sportscaster type, 
rather than a screaming wrestling type, more of a, a reporter, a journalist, you know, in quotes, if you will, with my background. I think that fit them, and it was great. So I went from the 143rd market to I think it was 260-something stations around the country overnight. Wow. That's 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 awesome. Uh, Craig, now, once you got to the WWF, were you watching it at that time frame, like on TV before you went there, like in 86, 87? Or did, were you familiar with the characters at that point? Because I know you said you were watching it when you were younger. I mean, obviously, you know, Hulk Hogan yeah. and Macho Man is, but were you familiar with all those characters before you got no, there? No, I wasn't. I wasn't familiar with the guys who would be lower on the card, but obviously I started, I had a little lead time. wasn't a lot. As I recall, I don't think I had more than a month or less to get. So I started watching some of the shows. Um, but I really only knew about Hogan and Macho Man probably going into that. But then I watched it a little bit, got familiar with it. It didn't take long to be, to feel part of the company. Uh, once you're around it and really delving into it, the first show I ever went to, was at the Sun Dome at South Florida, as a matter of fact, <laughs> USF. And um, I wasn't supposed to do anything on the air. I was only supposed to observe. But all of a sudden, and we can get into this, I had to change my name as Gene Oakland came up to me. And, and one, within about 25 minutes, I was doing my first bit when I didn't think I was doing anything. I thought I was just observing. <laughs> and I had to change my name. And I, it was, it's really a funny story. But, but that's how it, it all started. So it took me a little while, but not too long to get to know everybody and how things work. Now, Craig, can now you, what, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jay. They, they call me Jumpin' Jay Tommy because I just jump in randomly. Didn't mean to step on your words there, brother. <laughs> uh, Craig, can you tell me how, how are you received by the wrestlers? Uh, if, are you perceived as like an outsider coming in, or were the wrestlers themselves very welcoming to you when you stepped into the locker room? I think like anything, well, you didn't go in the locker room too much. That was for sure. I don't even remember going in there maybe at all uh, because that was their, their spot. I think it, it was a trust period. You know, um, I think Hogan started calling me Cool Craig because he used to call him Killer Ken Resnick, the guy I replaced. And uh, once you start being around these guys they see, and then they see you, and they understand, you're, look, you're helping them and they're helping you. Uh, it's, it's a team. It really is a team. And so it didn't take long for me to establish – you know, a good rapport with, with these guys. You get to know them. You travel with some of them. Um, obviously, Vince brought me in, so that helps. And, you know, yeah, there's, there's that natural feeling out for who is this guy, what's he going to ask me. Uh, I remember sometimes doing interviews with Jake Roberts where Jake thought I, I almost, like, one-upped him after he said something. He, he was like, don't, don't keep following up. You know, you get those little things. People have their quirky <laughs> personalities uh, that happen. Uh, but but really, one of the strangest things, if you if you want to go into it now, is just going into my name. I, I thought I was going to be Craig Minervini, which is my real name, uh, until like 20 minutes before my first show, where I was told I have to change my name. <laughs> who who how, came how to you? Wanna... Who came and asked you to change your name? <laughs> well, I, again, I was I was in the the uh, corridor of the Sun Dome at USF University of South Florida College over in the Tampa area. I was only supposed to observe, and kind of down the hall, Gene Oakland yells, hey, kid, he goes, uh, a big guy wants you to do something. Oh, that's great. Okay, good. And he turned his head, and he looked back. He goes, but he wants you to change your name. This isn't Oak Hill, West Virginia, guys. This is every station in the country. 
I mean, this is your name. And, you know, no heads up. I mean, I got 20, how long? 20 minutes? So Gene, <laughs> believe it or not, he came down. There was a phone booth. Remember those? There was a phone booth in the arena. There was a phone book under there. And literally, Gene Oakland and me started flipping through the phone book to try and find a new last name for me. And then it's like, 15 minutes. Oh, my God. How about Craig Luna? No, I, I, nothing felt comfortable. Think about that. If you had to change your name on a snap of a finger, what, what you would, you know, this is your name. So I actually thought of my mother's maiden name with about five minutes to go, which is DeGeorge. And um, I actually called up, what do you think? Uh, you know, maybe I'll raise the family's name or bring it down. So that's how it became <laughs> Craig DeGeorge. We, we, we ran it by Vince. Vince said, fine. And, and uh, it was amazing because when he threw it to me on that show, he said, let's go down to Craig DeGeorge. You could hardly hear the name. <laughs> Remember the hey. next, like a day or two after it ran, we were in Baltimore and some guy yelled to the other guy, hey, I think that's Craig DeGeorge. And I said, oh, my God, what am I getting into? They already know who I am. Yeah, that's that's something I want to talk about now, Craig. And, and I'm, I'm not sure if you have a bad connection. You're, you've been cutting in and out in the last uh, minute or so. Uh, what I want to talk about next is what you just said about the next day you went somewhere and they said Craig to George. You were part of the WWF during its really, really, really boom period uh, as far as pop culture goes, that, that time frame. What was it like for you? Now, that was the, the first night. Now, say, fast forward a couple months from then, uh, you know, it, it's all over. Where it's everywhere in the world. Every, everywhere you turn on TV, it's WWF. What was it like uh, becoming, and, and even though you weren't a wrestler, you were still a WWF superstar. What was it like for you at that time? You're a young kid, a uh, young guy, young man, yeah. traveling the world, right. and you're, you're one of these larger-than-life TV characters. You know, I probably didn't see myself as that. I, I wanted to be a sportscaster since I was probably seven or eight years old. So to me, it was sort of another gig, obviously on a much bigger stage, literally. Uh, and it wasn't something I really planned on doing, wrestling. Never thought really about being a wrestling announcer. Um, just enjoyed, like I told you as a kid, watching it. I, I never really got caught up in that. I just, it was, I enjoyed the uh, ambiance, the television, Gene Oakland. Couldn't have been a, a better mentor, uh, always trying to help out. And I will tell you this, when, being in the ring or, or bring, being in the, that arena and bringing on a Hulk Hogan or watching him uh, go in the ring is, is exciting. And I've covered everything, Stanley Cup, Super Bowl, World Series, NBA, you know, championship. Uh, the Hogan entrance into a ring is as exciting a, a atmosphere as any have ever been around. And so, to me, I got the, the juices were flowing. Um, I, I enjoyed writing those wrestling updates. I would write them. Um, going to Syracuse, we learned how to write for broadcast. Write for the ear, uh, not the eye. And um, I, I enjoyed all of that. But I never really got caught up in who I was, uh, per se. Because, and I, to this day, I think it's, you know, I'm just, it's just what I do. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Listen, Craig, you just brought up a Hulk Hogan entrance. And like any fan of 80s wrestling, I was a huge Hulkamaniac. And so since you brought his name up a couple times, I just have to ask. His interviews in the 80s were unbelievable. 
there, there's stuff of legends. There's things that today, when you go back and watch them, it still gives you goosebumps if you're a wrestling fan because he's so over the top. What was the process like when you were going to interview a superstar like a Hulk Hogan and the camera was about to flip on? What kind of transition did they go from Hulk Hogan the person to Hulk Hogan the character during the interview? What was that process like to see firsthand? Instant, instantaneous went from Terry to Hulk, like that, bang. Uh, now, there are two different things. I would interview him on the stage, you know, which you've seen on these old shows, out in the, out in the, in the public, in the audience with 19,000 people watching. Those were sort of timed interviews. I had a question or two I would ask, and pretty much he took it. I didn't have to be uh, the greatest interviewer. I didn't have to be Oprah Winfrey uh, to get a good bite. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that is, that is really nice, by the way, is when you interview athletes today, Sometimes you feel like you're pulling teeth to get it. Sure. You didn't have to worry about that with wrestling. They had to be great interviewees, and they were, because they were promoting who they were, their brand, and the WWF by large. Uh, but the difference was, guys, is when we would do those interviews, if you recall back in the day, I'm not sure how familiar you were with the average show we had, but there would be these promotional interviews that were two minutes, I believe, and 24 seconds each, and there would be three of them in each show. And so we had the superstars of wrestling and wrestling challenge were the two big shows. Those were the two shows they would tape uh, every three weeks, superstars, usually the first night. And then about two hours away, we would drive to the next night and shoot the challenge show. So that was your six shows, right? Now every show, think about this, every show you had to have a personalized interview of 224, three of them per show, in probably, let's say, two months out, 60 to 80 of the markets, if I had a guess, maybe 100. And then the others, they would run a, a, an interview that would be generic. So, but, the, but the wrestling interviews were because they were all promotional. In New York City, they'd be saying, we're coming to Madison Square Garden on Tuesday night, April the 3rd. Don't miss the card, blah, blah, blah. After you're done with that, we're coming to the Von Braun Civic Center in Huntsville, Alabama on Wednesday, March, and so on. We're coming to Springfield, Illinois on Tuesday. And so on. And so everything was customized. So what happened was I would, have to, I would have to fly to a city, let's say Phoenix, Arizona. There's no television. It's just um, to do these interviews. And we would go to the ballroom of the Holiday Inn. They put up that blue background with the WWF logo in yellow. And, and I would bring on these guys. And I would do like 20 consecutive interviews with Hulk Hogan. And we always started out with Erie, Pennsylvania and Pensacola, Florida, the smaller markets. And after about eight or ten, he'd go, okay, brother, let's bring on the garden. And we'd bring on New York and Boston Garden and the Spectrum and so on. And then once he was done, uh, you know, Bruce Beefcake would come in or George Animal Steel or Jimmy Hart or Honky Tonk. And we did, we did literally 100, and I'd say 120, 100 to 125 interviews in one day, back, one after another. Wow. That's how it worked. Wow. Hey Craig, I, I, you, I, you said something. I want to. I want to make a, a quick mention. I remember those as a kid. I remember uh, I lived about 20 minutes from the Meadowlands Arena back then. It was the Brendan Byrne Arena in East Rutherford, New Jersey, and they they would come there monthly. And I remember one Saturday morning, I'm sitting there watching wrestling at home, and Honky Tonk Man came on, and it might have been even you interviewing him for the live event center. And you know, he said, "Oh, this Saturday night." Or, uh, you know, I'm going to be at the Meadowlands Arena and I'm going to do the shake, rattle and roll. And you can hear it from everywhere from Patterson to Wayne. And like he said, my town, like I was like, holy <laughs> shit. Well, I didn't say holy shit then, but 
Uh, holy moly. Yeah. You know, I was so excited that he said my actual town that I lived in. And it, it, that was such a way back then for for the, the WWF uh, to just grab you, like just take your hand out of the television and grab you and suck you in. Because, you know, right. they were coming to right. the market. But they didn't only say the market. They said the town I lived in. So I thought he was talking to me yeah. directly. Uh, a question yeah. for you to, to follow up with your last question, Craig. You said you did about 150 uh, interviews at, at the Holiday Inn with the backdrop. What would the day consist like for you? Uh, what time would you start and what time you end? Because I'm, I'm, I'm assuming this is a very, very, very long day. And also, follow up yeah, to that so is how often yeah. would you do those long days of well, taping? Well, I, w- I would fly in. I would fly in normally the night before. Again, this is what they call the dark show. So there's no television on the show. I mentioned Superstars and Challenge. We would shoot those every three weeks where it was a tremendous production with the lighting. I mean, it was very much ahead of its time. They used a man named Ferd Manning who, was the, who did the lighting for, for the HBO boxing, which was, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard back in the day. And, and the lighting was very similar because Ferd did the lighting. And I'm talking about every light was placed, move left, move right. That would be a hour and a half, two hour thing in the, in the morning at the, at the show, whichever arena it was in to set those lights for television. Very innovative. Remember most of the wrestling, everything was dark around that. Not Vince. He had that crowd lit up and he had it done in the most professional manner. And that's how those, those worked. So for me, um, I would usually go in the night before the non televised shows, but the ones we were doing the interviews and then we would start early in the morning, you know, 9, 9 a.m. Usually. Uh, probably go till three, four in the afternoon before the wrestlers, you know, had to get going and do 20 per man, roughly, maybe, you know, depending on how many cards a guy was on, it could be less or more. All they had was, there was no script. They had a uh, eight by 10 piece of paper with a black magic marker with, you know, it'd be like honky tonk versus, you know, for argument's sake, Ricky Steamboat lying, uh, intercontinental thing with this macho man versus whatever, blah, 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 blah. And it'd be on one sheet, and it was taped right under the camera. So occasionally you'd see, you know, the, the announcer, me, Gene, look, and, and go, go over the card, which is how we started all the interviews. We're coming here. And, and by the way, I would go and, and look in, in a uh, map and sometimes mention. So fans in Lima and here and here, come on out to Ohio. I would throw that in myself every now and then. I thought that was cool. And I thought that was one of the neat things about the WWF is you not only watched it on TV, uh, a national show, but they came to your town and you follow them personally. And then where else can you say that where you see a national group and they, they're coming to your place and you're, for that night, you're the home team. That's the cool thing about wrestling. I think it was one of the attractions. All right, Craig. Now my mind is just is spinning, picturing these long days of each wrestler doing like 20 in a row. And so just curiosity has me. I have to ask, is there any wrestler that you remember who struggled with that, who just couldn't seem to get the 20 done without taking an extremely long time? You know, I would, believe it or not, I would say not really. Don't forget, the guys I was dealing with were the top of the, of the, of the line. They had made it to the top of their profession, not just on their athletic ability. I'm, I'm talking to Jim Neidhart's of the world, and, you know, he would scare me, that guy, when he came in. And a lot of them also had their, had their manager to lean on. Don't forget the managers involved here. So you didn't have to carry like Hogan, a two minute and 24 second interview. Hogan was different. Macho man was different. But if you had another guy, the slickster could come in and do his spiel or, uh, or, you know, some of the other managers of the day, Oliver Humperdinck or Jimmy Hart, 
could come in and, and you know, even Honky Tonk was a great interview, but then Jimmy would come in with his two cents or be in the background waving his hands or whatever the heck he did. So I would say no. Uh, Jake Roberts came in. I, Jake was commanding. You know, he scared the crap out of you with the, with the uh, snake. Damien, you know, I wasn't really a fan of snakes, and that thing would be a little too close too often. <laughs> but he was so real. That guy seemed like he was in, he, if you will, I never saw him out of character. Jake Roberts was Jake Roberts, at least as far as I ever saw him. That's who he was, that guy. Well, Craig, you're just going to you're you're lucky because you're on the 22nd in the virtual signing with us. We have Jake that Sunday on the 28th, so you'll just miss out on uh seeing your old friend Damien again a couple of days later, so. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to miss him. I know Bob Orton's going to be with us and I, I I knew Bob there. Obviously, I worked with him a little bit and that's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. We're really excited to have you being a part of this. Again, anyone that wants to uh to get an opportunity to get an autographed photo of Craig DeGeorge. And obviously this is an extremely rare opportunity because this is his first appearance he's doing in decades. You can head over now to eighteeswrestlingcon.com. You select the photo you'd like of Craig and then tune in live to our Facebook page on Monday, March the 22nd between seven and 10 PM Eastern time. Craig will sign your autograph, give you a shout out. And uh, I was just talking to Craig off the air yesterday Craig's actually going to bring his old WWF jacket with him to wear. And uh, it's yeah. impressive that it still fits you. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if it does. I may not be able to button it. That's for sure. It's that light blue one. In fact, I have to look around. I put, put it somewhere, but I have had it because we did a wrestling show at a Marlins game a few years ago and I wore it and actually did the commentary. Uh, Brett, the hitman Hart was down here and Jimmy Hart and Bruce Beefcake. We had a, actually a pretty good card. Uh, and some of the wrestlers got into it with the Marlin players, and they they really – Tom Kohler, one of our pitchers, just loved it, getting in the ring and, and battering somebody with an aluminum can. Uh, <laughs> and, in fact, I think it was Goldberg, and Goldberg told him to hit him much harder, and he didn't want to do it. He, and and he, he did it behind the scenes. He did it on his head and said, see, it's not bad. Just do it. So, so it, was a, it was a great uh, great show, great fun. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. March 22nd. Uh, yes, sir. On a Monday night, right, in New York. Yep. Uh, Craig, another thing I want to talk to you about, a very interesting topic, was your involvement with the WWF Coliseum videos back then. Back then, there was no WWE Network. There was no DVDs. You would have to go to the video store and rent uh, a VHS tape, and it was the WWF Coliseum videos. Now, you were obviously there for a short period of time, but in that time frame you were there, you did a lot of stuff, and one of them was – including hosting several of these WWF Coliseum videos. I know you did a bunch of them with Johnny Valiant. What was the process behind uh, creating the content for the Coliseum videos, and how long would it take after you filmed them for them to be released on VHS? Well, usually they would, they, it was one of part of my, my deal there. And that was one of the things that probably the only thing that I knew that, um, that would be running well after I worked there. You know, if I didn't work there for my whole career, it was on video. I didn't know, I don't think anybody, that shows that we did then would be broadcast now. Uh, but uh, but then obviously with a video, you know, it has a, a lifespan. It's going to go for a while. And um, somebody would come up a concept. I have a picture in my office here of, of me on the boat with, um, with Hulk Hogan on a, on a very small kind of almost speedboat we went out to the Long Island Sound. We went off Connecticut one day and did the shoot. 
And it was what's funny about did you ever see this video by chance? Yeah, it was Hulkamania three, correct? Okay. I, I'm not even sure the name of it. Was that, maybe it was Hulkamania I believe three. Maybe it was. I just remember when we went out to do the interview, we have one camera and we're kind of if you picture it sitting on the there's seats in the back and we're sitting on the top of the seat where our feet now are on where you, where you would normally sit, if you follow me, right? So my feet are on the where you would sit. We're sitting kind of on the top of the seat. I'm sitting next to Hogan and before we roll he goes, hey, brother, hey, is, uh, could you just, you know, scoot down? Now, Hulk Hogan is, what, 6'6", six, six, I'm 5'11", at tops. He's already a monster, right? He's 300 and something pounds. I'm, I'm 180 if I'm lucky. He wanted me to sit, uh, literally sit on the seat lower, if you know what I mean, and where he's sitting up high now, and I'm looking up at him, very awkward. You know, just a, a, you would never talk to anybody like that. <laughs> he just wanted to look bigger. It's crazy. If you ever see it, it looks ridiculous. So I'm sitting like he's he is three feet higher than me, and I'm sitting down. And I don't know how the camera shot it, but it was a good, you know I'm like whatever you know. But Vince liked to shoot all the superstars. I'm sure that's where he got it. When Andre the Giant came in, that camera wasn't high; it was down on the ground shooting up. If you ever there was an old show called Land of the Giants. And there was a technique they used there, too. They shoot the giants that way, and they shoot everybody else down. And it created this, this larger-than-life image, part of it anyway. And that's what Hogan did on that one. But those shows were fun. We did the WrestleMania. Sometimes um, I would do, you know, after a WrestleMania or a big event, interviews and, and kind of behind-the-scenes footage that you didn't see on the actual show. So, Craig, when you're when you're there during that time period, are you traveling the country to all these shows along with the wrestlers, or are you pre-recording everything uh, in Stanford or in Connecticut, or are you on the road with these guys? Well, that's a good question. When I first took the job, and again, I was a short, like I got this job all of a sudden I moved back. My mother lived on Long Island, the house I grew up in. I thought I was going to move to Stanford, Connecticut. And about a week or two in, I, I called up and said, do I have to move to Stanford? And, and they, uh, they really both basically told me, you just got to be close to an airport. So I stayed at my boyhood home, which made it easy for me since I was traveling so much. And I flew out of the Islip MacArthur Airport on Long Island for the most part, unless I had to go into the city, you know, for a different flight connection. But that's what I did. I flew everywhere. Uh, I never went to Stanford the first year. They, used to, they did not have the production facility the first year I was there. So we went to a place in um, Owings Mills, Maryland. And that's where they did all their shows out of for the first year. Uh, it was off the Beltway. I remember going there. I would go there uh, way, way too many times, just a couple of times a week sometimes, fly southwest right into Baltimore and hop in a, in a rental car and, and drive over there. Uh, or I would fly and meet wherever the show was, the superstars of the challenge show, maybe a Coliseum video shoot or those interviews I told you about where we'd be flying all over the country, depending on where the wrestlers were, and I would go to that city. Could be Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Could be, uh, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, wherever they were to shoot those interviews. It didn't matter. They just put the same background up. And we did the interviews in a hotel. Craig, we can we can go on talking to you probably for the next couple hours, just talking about WWF and and and, and just that time frame. I know you had about ten minutes left. You have to head out for a meeting, so. I want to play a game with you, both of us. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, during that during that time frame, like I said, that that is the golden era of professional wrestling when you were there. So what me and Jay would like to do with you is play a little name game with you. 
We're going to throw a bunch of names at you from that time frame. Okay. And, you know, All either right. a couple of words or a couple of sentences, the first thing you think of when you hear uh, this person's name or, or even a quick brief memory of, of, of each one. Right. I'll, I'll start off first. Andre the Giant. Elbowed me in the stomach. Didn't expect it. The Spectrum in Philly. I was doing an interview with him. He took the mic. He, he, you know, he had these big pauses. So I'm waiting and waiting. Grabbed the mic back. He, I'm not finished. With the left hand, grabs the mic. Finished talking yet with the right elbow. Boom, right in my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. All right, the next names I'd like to hear something about is Demolition, Axe and Smash. Uh, Great interview team. Uh, Scary with that makeup. I I didn't know them personally that well, especially who was the guy with the gravelly voices? That was more Axe, right? That was Axe. That guy with that deep. Yeah, Axe. I didn't really know much outside of those interviews. The other guy was a little nicer, but they scared they scared the living you know what out of me almost every time I interviewed him. <laughs> they were in character the whole time, and here I'm this you know this younger guy, and who is this guy? And uh, yeah, that's what I remember of those guys. But they were very good. Usually, uh, you know, Smash was the was the setup guy, and Axe had the punch. Next up, Bad News Brown. Bad News Brown came around for a little while. Was he Brooklyn? Where was he based? He was a New York guy, I think. Harlem. Based out of New York. Harlem, yes, of course. He was Harlem, Harlem, uh, New York. Uh, tough guy, I would say. He was a tough guy. Didn't do a lot of interviews with him, but he had a good little run. How about the big boss man? Another guy in that, that category. Occasionally I would do some interviews with him, but most of the time Oliver Humperdinck seemed to do the talking. Uh, I couldn't believe how big he was. I mean, you know, everybody talked about Andre the Giant. Big boss man was big. Next next name I know you did a lot with, and uh, that's Bobby the Brain Heenan. Uh, fantastic. The best manager I've ever seen. Um, you know, was not a, um, a, not a guy who you'd have a lot of um, conversation with about things other than wrestling. Was very much, especially with, with me, um, very much businesslike. Uh, I remember running into him one time a couple of years later. I was in Vegas, and he was walking at the MGM Grand, and he, you know, he was he was in character the whole way. Even even though he was being friendly, that we walked and and was uh, you know in character the whole way. Another thing I always remember is when he had to have that neck brace on, uh, and he he had nothing wrong with his neck, of course, but for the shtick, he had a he had a neck brace. He had to wear that thing everywhere he went for, I don't know how many months, four months, six months. <laughs> it was a He'd be in the airport with the thing on. <laughs> Nothing's wrong with his neck. He's fine. He's got that brace on. Uh, this next name is the guy you just mentioned having down in Florida for a wrestling night, Brett the Hitman Hart. Consummate professional. I almost look at him like a hockey player. I know he's from Canada. Hard nose. Um, serious. Uh, cared about his craft. A great wrestler. Uh, you know, the interviews were, were on point. Um, again, no BS with him. He was a straight, just like the whole family, straightforward. Uh, he just was, when you think of a wrestler, um, a guy who gave it his all, uh, I think of Brett the Hitman Hart. He's almost the, the prototype to me. He, he, like, a, like a hockey player or a basketball player, a baseball player in their craft, Brett the Hitman Hart, number one. Another name that I want to mention in, we, we're really not going to have time to get into your involvement with the UWF. I can go a little longer. So if we, if we go longer, we can go. 
Okay, great, great. I, I want to briefly mention about the UWF, but I'll do that after this name association game. Uh, but another person that, because you, you did commentary with him in the UWF, but he was in the WWF at the, as an announcer at the time, Bruno Sammartino. Well, the classic old, old-time wrestler, uh, and I talk about Bret the Hitman Hart, he was probably the American version even more so because he was a, really a national figure. Um, did not like the way wrestling was going with the antics, the characters. He was, you know, black, the black tights and, and let me go at it for an hour. Uh, hard nose also. Pittsburgh guy. Loved Pittsburgh. I used to love, even to this day, going to Pramani Brothers, which is a famous little um, pizza restaurant with these famous sandwiches in Pittsburgh. And they got a big shot, a cartoon of, of Bruno San Martino on the wall right next to Mario Lemieux and the great Pittsburgh athletes, Roberto Clemente of all time. Uh, I loved working with them. I got to know him even better with the UWF because he did the color and I did the play-by-play, uh, but always appreciated him. He loved wrestling. And um, if you ask Bruno to this day, uh, it's as serious a sport as any. And I know we lost him, but he, what a great man. Hmm. How about uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake? What do you remember about Brutus? Uh, watch out for those clippers because they, they're, they're coming. What a good stick that was for him the, when he got the red and white uh, tape to put around. I always thought those were, like, where do you buy those? I didn't realize it was just red and white tape he put on the handles. I thought that was some special place they sold those scissors. <laughs> uh, you know, he was a character. He's not the world's greatest wrestler, but it was a great stick he came up with. And I remember things like, I, I remember stuff like, I mentioned a phone booth. I remember hearing guys, jobbers, who would call and, and on the phone and walk them by and say, honey, I made an extra thousand tonight. Oh, great. But I have no hair. <laughs> how about how about the British Bulldogs? Uh, they were there when you were there. Uh, any any? Uh, do you ever get ribbed by the, the Bulldogs, or did you ever see any of their uh, classic ribs? Not too ribs? bad. I know they were. I know they're world famous for the ribs. I, I was able to stay out of that. But don't forget, I was the anchor of the, one of the biggest stories in the '80s: the disappearance of Matilda. Yes, we were, just, story. we were just talking about that last week here on the podcast. What, what's your memories of that? I, well, I, I got to do these special reports on Matilda, the whereabouts of Matilda, and interviews. It was incredible. Uh, we would have letters from the, uh, you know, they had to be very careful. Uh, I remember getting an actual letter in the mail with the WWF logo in the left corner, which was cool just to see, you know, you get your name on there, Craig Benervini, Dick Salesman, and so on. Uh, Craig DeGeorge, actually. And um, I opened the letter up, and it's a typewritten letter. Do not, do not, in big letters, do not use the words, quote, dog napped when referring to Matilda. They had an issue with the, what is it, the ASCPA or whatever that, that animal rights group is. Yeah. They were not allowed to use dog napped. We were told in a letter, do not, no matter wow. what you do, do not say. So what happened about, I swear, two minutes into the first show after that, Jesse Ventura, Matilda got dog napped that bad. <laughs> <laughs> he could get away with anything. But listen, we did when when Matilda returned. Here's what I remember too. Matilda returned. We put a uh, uh, interview thing out, a segment I did, and probably one of those updates where it was to write a letter to get well, Matilda, post office box, whatever, Stanford, Connecticut, sure. the zip code. And uh, you wouldn't believe thousands. Now Matilda was never harmed. Okay, thousands of letters poured in on on wishing Matilda well. Wow! <laughs> I mean, thousands, I mean, ten thousands. It was incredible. 
Man, that now, was Chris, like, wow. No, that was they, another wow moment. They did that also. I remember them. They did that with, with several things. You read a letter in. I remember it was Hulk Hogan, yes. his friendship race and all that. Was that a, and if so, it's very smart, a marketing tool to get their fans' addresses so they can add to their database? Well, that's that. I, I, I'm not sure they went that far. It could be. I, I, I never thought of it that way. I think it was a marketing tool to, to engage, which is their whole thing. The WWF is engaging the fan. We not only talk to you, we not only talk, we come to your town, we do interviews, we personalize it. I think it was all part of the process of engaging. As you said, when you were a kid, it connected you further. I mean, the guy on, that playing on your local baseball major league team or hockey isn't talking about your hometown. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I think it was part of the whole process to engage the fan even closer, to give them a connection that the WWF is not only entertainment, it's, it's really like family. It's, it's must-see viewing every week, and it worked. It did work. It was must-see viewing. And as fans, we bought into all those storylines. So, they, yeah, they were ahead of their time with storytelling for sure. The next name I want to bring up is somebody I know you worked very closely with. I had the opportunity to meet this gentleman a few years ago, and it was a pleasure, uh, Mr. Mean Gene Okerlund. Oh, you know, I am so sad that we lost Gene. I, I have talked to him in recent years. His son was a hockey player, as you know, played in the NHL. My son played college hockey. We would travel over in that Sarasota area, and a few times we almost hooked up, and he couldn't make it, or I couldn't make it, or He'd be in Brooklyn. This is in recent years. I am so sad. The first thing I think about is that I didn't get to see him before he passed away. I loved him. He was a great guy. He did not look at a young reporter like myself or Sean Mooney or any of us as, as any kind of threat. Uh, not that he would. He's the best. Nobody's even close. Nobody ever will be as good as Gene Oakland. Um, we were different, obviously, in what we did, but he was the best. And he couldn't have been nicer. And he was a schmoozer. You know, he'd be on the plane, come on, honey, with those stewards. Give it all away. <laughs> Give it up. Come away with it. You know, he's a character. Uh, he was on 100 time, 100% of the time, and I loved him. I really did. Well, I will, I will say this. When I met him, I was with my sister. He definitely gave her more attention than he gave me. So I believe the story about being a schmoozer. <laughs> you know, yeah, he, was, he was a schmoozer. It was very disappointing also. Not only was he a huge part of our childhood, but we actually had him the first eighties wrestling con we did Craig, the one the first one I tried to get you for. Uh we actually had Mean Gene booked for that and he had passed away before the the, the con happened. And uh we also had King Kong Bundy booked for that one. He had passed away a couple months after Gene, so that was two uh huge losses to eighties to wrestling. One one more name mm. I want to throw at you before we let you go, and it's a name you just brought up. It's an interesting one, Jesse the Body Ventura. Yeah, Jesse, I did a few. I would do a few dark matches with him, ones that weren't televised, but then they would they would run them. They didn't televise it on that part of the big show, but somewhere down the line they would they would run it. And look, he was he was great to work with. I didn't work with him with the XFL because I was on a different crew on that. But, um, you know, he, he was a character. He was just another one of these, like, you know, you came into this world of from pro sports where I was covering, you know, mostly pro or local sports. And, and you came into this world with one character after another, and each were unique. And the amazing thing to me was Vince was basically the puppeteer. And he could do each of these characters probably better even than Hogan could do Hogan or Macho Man could do Macho Man or whatever. And Jesse had a shtick that was great. He was the perfect color man. I still love going back and watching 
Um, the, and it, it, you just can't. For I don't know why you just can't duplicate it. Everybody tries, but you can't duplicate the magic of of these guys that worked. In Jesse's case, when I picked him up, he was a, he was the color man. You can't duplicate it. You know, with the with the crazy clothing and the stand-ups they would do. The stand-ups alone, guys, would take forever because they did three stand-ups per show. Now think about this: you're doing it. You did, you did it in the in the studio, in the arena, right? The crowd is there, and you did three per show in English, French, and Spanish. So that's nine. You know, a minute and a half long. It's a long time to make people wait, and they would get them ready. You're going to go on national television. Three, two, one, go! And they would do one, and they would do it again. And the crowd was a studio audience, and they played along with it. But it was a long night. When you did those superstars and challenge shows, it could be a four, five-hour night, easy. Man, that's incredible. That's something as a fan you don't realize at the time when you're watching it that they're doing that many right. takes and it's that long of a night. Now, if you're uh, in the building, you, you notice it, obviously. Yeah. Sure. I, I have to ask you, since you were an interviewer and we're doing a name game association, the interviews of this guy are so rememberable. I have to ask you, what was it like to interview the ultimate warrior? I only caught him toward the end of his, uh, or actually I should say the beginning when he started. Uh, I was there for a few of them. He wasn't, um, you know, it's funny. He didn't have a lot to say. He had a lot of movement. He had a lot of paint. Um, he had an incredible physique. Uh, but would you regard him, you yourself, as, uh, and we're just talking out loud here, nothing, I'm not trying to say anything bad about it, but I wouldn't recall him as a, as a great interview. Uh, no, was, his, 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 interviews, his interviews are memorable because they're just rambling. They don't make any sense at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, he was, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you didn't know, you just let him, you, you, you teed him up and, and, you know, I didn't have to ask too many follow-ups in a lot of these uh, scenarios where the guy would just go. Uh, the one that, the one you know, we could, I could be creative on a little more would be the local ones that were running just in that market where then I could have a little fun and, and, you know, no one would see it except people in Springfield, Massachusetts. And by the way, every now and then Springfield, Missouri interview would wind up in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, those stuff every now and then they would oh, send a sure. long interview. Oh yeah, and you'd be promoting the show in Illinois, and somebody in Massachusetts is going, "Boy, that's a long drive to see uh, Honky Tonk Man." <laughs> <laughs> Craig, last question before we let you go uh, is: I want to make mention real quick of you working with Herb Abrams at UWF last year. Dark Side of the Ring put out a special on Herb Abrams. What, what, how did you wind up there? Uh, I know because you lived up in this area, but what are some of your uh, your memories of, of the bizarre Herb Abrams? Well, I would get a call because of uh, my WWF. I would get a call from a lot of these independent uh, wrestling people every now and then. Hey, do you want? I would. I did this one show in Tampa with uh, Hiro Matsuda called me, the Japanese great wrestler, and there was some wrestling he would have from Japan and Mexico. Strange combination. I remember Jushin Thunder Liger it was unbelievable. And, and Oliver Humperdinck, who lived in Tampa, I would fly over from uh, the east coast of Florida and do these shows every now and then. And I don't even know where they ran. But UWF, so I got a call. I think it was from Herb. He was a, a very peculiar man. I liked him. I liked, you know, I'm a New York guy. I liked him. He was a strange guy. Uh, was he from L.A.? He was an L.A. guy, wasn't he? Or New York and moved to L.A. He might have been New York and moved to L.A., but he wasn't your typical. I mean, he was a weird guy. Perfume, if you had perfume, you couldn't be near him. You know, he would... He was ahead of the COVID before anybody. You had a, if he went to his limo, he'd have to clean off the door before he touched the handle. I mean, he, he was a bizarre guy, but he was a wrestling fan. 
who loved the business so much uh, that he became a wrestling promoter. And he was a good, he had a good shtick and he got it on sports channel America, which was national. And uh, I got to do it. I did a pay-per-view. I don't know if we had five viewers somewhere in Florida on Bradenton, Florida, the beach brawl. It was a great show until uh, Jimmy Valiant kissed me. Ooh. Uh, in the middle of this show, he comes over and, you know, he was kind of a gross guy with tattoos and he was about 160 pounds. And, and um, I forgot his nickname. What was his nickname? Jimmy. Luscious. He's not Johnny V. I'm talking about, huh? Luscious Johnny V. No, no, not Luscious Johnny Jimmy Valiant. Oh, Jimmy. Oh, Boogie Woogie Man. Boogie Woogie Man. Yes, the Boogie Woogie Man. And, oh, God. And let me tell you, not a career highlight to get kissed. Boogie Woogie Man. Oh. <laughs> But it was it was fun working those UWF shows. I still didn't get paid for the last show. So if you see somebody from his estate, tell him to send me a check. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> Craig, thank you so much for taking the time uh, today to come on 80s Wrestling, the podcast. We're super excited to have you coming up as our next live virtual signing. Again, it's going to be on Monday, March the 22nd from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. And you can head over now to 80swrestlingcon.com. Pick out the photo that you would like. There's a couple really good classic ones of Craig on there. He will sign it for you personally and give you a shout-out live during the, the uh, episode that we're going to air on March 22nd. Craig, thank you so much. and We look forward to seeing you in a couple weeks. Absolute pleasure. And, Tommy, I have never done anything like this uh, since I left the WWF, no, where I was called in to – so it's going to be an honor for me to connect with the fans again. This is the first time, and uh, I'll enjoy it. I'm looking forward to seeing all you guys. In, uh, we'll be in Newark, and wherever they are, uh, I'll be signing a nice autograph. So look forward all right, to it. Craig. Thanks again. Have a great day. Thanks. And there you have it. Former WWF announcer Craig DeGeorge uh, join us. Uh, Jay, that was an awesome, awesome interview. He He really dived deep into a lot of uh, great topics, and, and this and this podcast today was brought to you by our good friends on Instagram, Wrestling Then and Now. Everyone in this day and age is on Instagram, and if you are, you have to be following Wrestling Then and Now. Uh, it's a great, great one of my favorite uh, pages on Instagram. Has a ton. Of great content on there, Jay. I know that you follow them as well. I'm looking at their page right now. There's a good shot here of Goldberg against William Regal from WCW. Uh, a classic shot I'm looking at of Brett the Hitman Hart against Nick Bockwinkle. This has to be early 80s. Uh, a, a candidate shot of Johnny B. Bad with DDP. Uh, all three members of Demolition, Axe, Smash, and Crush. I'm looking at a shot here of Vince McMahon, a candidate shot with X-Pac. And uh, Scott Hall looks like it's in a hotel lobby. Some really, really classic shot. Oh, here's another good, real cool shot of Hulk Hogan talking with Adrian Adonis. It looks like it's in Japan at a looks like a front desk of a hotel. Some really, 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 really awesome shots. So if you're on Instagram, head over and follow Wrestling Then and Now, who was uh, today's sponsor here on 80s Wrestling, the podcast. You, you follow that page, right, Jay? I do follow that page. It's one of my favorite Instagram pages because not only does it have shots of today's current superstars, it's got stuff from when I grew up as a fan, and it's got photos that 
I've never seen anywhere else. And so I always wonder where these guys are able to get these amazing photos, but there's things you won't find anywhere else. There's a picture of Andre the Giant hanging out uh, with a member of the Hart family and the Dynamite Kid. And it's definitely a candid shot. Like it's not a magazine shot. And so it's just very cool photos that you won't find anywhere else. And so there's always something new and exciting coming across that page. I'm, I'm, I'm on the page right now, Jay. I see a picture. I know you must be too. Of Ron Simmons, JBL, and Snoop Dogg. That's an odd three. Uh, that's an odd three right there. I'm looking at that picture. I'm also looking at a really classic shot of Jim Ross interviewing Sting and Lex Luger. And, and the picture underneath that is Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Rock. Really, some really good content on this page. You know, I love. I love Instagram's format because right here on this page, Wrestling Then and Now, you just get to keep scrolling up and up and up, and you're seeing photos that instantly bring you back to your childhood and make you love wrestling even more. I, I, I wish we would have had something like, like I love wrestling magazines. I loved them growing up. But this is at your fingertips 24-7. If you can't fall asleep, you can jump on your phone and you can relive the glory days of wrestling. You don't have to run to a newsstand and buy it. It's there. It's at your fingertips. What a treat this would have been to have uh, as a as a 10-year-old. Can you imagine having, uh, it, back then, if you would see, like, just using this as an example, say, you know, George Animal Stale post a picture of, of his mail at, uh, at, at Friendly's. <laughs> he posted it on his Instagram page. But you're right, A, nice, a mean, nice little plate with a turnbuckle on it. Is that what you're <laughs> indicating? Yeah. Ah, you took, my, you took my high spot from me, man. Damn. <laughs> I, was to, you know, I was totally setting up for that. Were you? Uh, oh, my bad, man. Yeah, I was. My bad. That was my, my, big, my big spot. You, you, you stole my thunder, Jay. But, yeah, my guys, bad. if you're on Instagram, head over to – wrestling then and now and if you're not following us yet obviously follow us it's at 80s wrestling uh yeah instagram's awesome man uh i want to make mention of a couple things jay uh on before we end today's episode i wanted to talk a little bit more i didn't want to take up too much time away from uh craig at the top of the broadcast but i cannot believe man how we jumped up in the ratings since last week uh the 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 most bizarre thing in, in my mind is bro, we are number one. We are the number one wrestling podcast in Russia. In Russia. And it has to be, it has to be because of our good friends, the Bolsheviks. It has to be. <laughs> I, I'm blown away that our rankings are so high. But when we came across that we are the number one wrestling podcast in Russia, there's no other explanation. It's No other podcast is bringing up the Bolsheviks as much as we are. And it's paying off in Russia, man. <laughs> hey, anyone also, anyone out there, any of our listeners out there from Russia right now, we want to say thank you so much. Uh, we are blown away that we are the number one wrestling podcast in Russia. And we're blown away period. Uh, like I said, we jumped up as high as number 12 in the top 250 wrestling podcast last week. Uh, one day we went ahead of, uh, WWE, we were right ahead of WWE's New Day podcast and also Arn Anderson's podcast, which is mind-boggling. We were last week we were uh, blown away that we were number twenty-four since you know we we haven't been doing this very long, uh, and and now we jumped up to number twelve. Uh, the remarkable part, Jay, is I w- I've been following. I don't know if you've been, but I've been following our 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 standings all week long because our pod our podcast drops every Thursday. 
yesterday was Wednesday, which is, you know, six days removed from our podcast being dropped. We were still number 15 yesterday, which is crazy if you think about it, because we didn't provide any new content. And at that time, six days. So that's, that's nuts, man. Again, it just goes to show you the passion fans have for 80s wrestling. I am confident that the only reason we're ranking so high is because of the topic that we talk about week in and week out. And I will tell you this, today's episode with Craig DeGeorge was so fun to listen to. That guy has so many great stories. He was living in the world that we were all on the outside of trying to peer in and get a glimpse of. He was in there. He was living it. And you can tell he enjoyed his time there, and he likes to talk about it. And so what a fun episode to sit and listen to Craig. And so I'm sure this episode, if people love – if they get to this part of the podcast, this makes no sense for me to say, but if you love 80s wrestling, you need to listen to this episode with Craig DeGeorge. Absolutely, man. He was very uh, he, he was very open with everything he was talking about. Uh, I find uh, very interesting how they would shoot the camera angles back then. How he said, you know, Hulk Hogan wanted him to sit down further, and and he was three feet higher than Craig. Or how when they they filmed Andre, it would be from the ground up. That's uh, very interesting information that you know being an eighties wrestling fan and, and we were kids at the time that we might have not have known that information. Uh, that's very, very interesting. It is. And how smart on a production standpoint, your goal is to make these guys seem larger than life. And so if you can change a camera angle or the height of a camera for a particular shot to accomplish that, like that's smart. That's stuff that I wouldn't think of. Yeah, man. It, it was really, really great to, uh, to, the, to discover that information. And another thing I found fascinating was, and, and I didn't know this until today, is that they used to tape all that, uh, all those live event promos in a hotel ballroom, which I found very, very interesting. I, I would assume that they did it at uh, either uh, whatever town they were in that day, since when all the wrestlers were, we're at the building or, or back in Stanford, but yeah, I guess maybe they, you know, they grabbed whatever hotel they were in town uh, for that taping on that particular day. But yeah, I, I found it very interesting that they were filming all those promos at the holiday inns ballroom. So that's a exclusive information right here on the podcast we got this week. Right, Jay? Could you imagine just you're ha- you happen to be staying at that hotel with your family for vacation and you just see wrestlers going in and out of the ballroom? Like how how mind boggling would that have been? Well, I'll tell you why. It's it's I I, I I see how people react to that because I do my virtual signings uh, every few weeks at the local Marriott by my house, and uh, the general manager is actually a wrestling fan from back in the day. And there was other, you know, people, you know, customers that were there that were wrestling fans too. And let's say someone like Teddy Biasi or Sergeant Slaughter go there, they're blown away that, you know, these wrestlers are, are, are there. So, yeah, I can imagine just being uh, back then in the 80s, just, you know, being, you know, a fan staying at the hotel and you see Hulk Hogan, you know, go into the vending machine to get a bottle, a bottle of water or going down to the hotel gym. But, yeah, I mean, that was uh, – great information from Craig. He, he, he had a lot of great information. There's a lot of stuff I still wanted to talk about with him that we couldn't, but 
The good thing is, is that we have him coming up on Monday, March the 22nd uh, for the next 80s Wrestling Con virtual signing. And uh, in the chat room, you guys can ask all your questions. And I'm sure that Craig will be entering. Craig will be joined by WWE Hall of Famer Cowboy Bob Orton. So we're having a doubleheader, our next virtual signing again, Monday, March 22nd. You can order your photos now for both gentlemen over at 80swrestlingcon.com. We just had another signing this past Monday with WWE Hall of Famer Wendy Richter. You had a chance to watch that, right, Jay? I did. And, you know, as we were just talking about wrestlers in the hotel room, and you mentioned seeing Hulk Hogan go to the vending machine, instantly the story Wendy told about Andre the Giant delivering sandwiches popped into my head. And so, yes, you had a signing with Wendy. She definitely lived wrestling during a very interesting time with some of the icons of the sport. She, too, told some pretty interesting stories, one of them involving Andre the Giant. And so if you love 80s wrestling stories, you need to tune into these virtual signings. It's just neat to listen to the stories that these individuals have because you're there with them for three hours. Where else are you going to get a superstar from the 80s for three hours uninterrupted? And so it's just a magical time to sit and enjoy. I, I enjoyed Wendy Richter signing very much. I'm very much looking forward to the one with Cowboy Bob and Craig coming up. Absolutely. And then that Sunday, our only Sunday uh, signing is going to be Sunday, March the 28th. This is the big one, Jay. Virtual Mania. It's going to be an all-day signing on Sunday, March the 28th. It's going to be headlined by WWE Hall of Famer, one of the biggest icons of 80s wrestling, Jake the Snake Roberts. And also there is an Ibihaku, the Orient Express, which is a really rare signing, which is going to be Tanaka and Kato. Also, Kato obviously was Max Moon, so there will be Max Moon photo opportunities as well. And joining them will be Steve Kern, who played Skinner, in the WWF. So that's going to be a really, really fun day. Again, that's going to be Sunday, March the 28th. And you can get photos now uh, from all those guests and also for Craig and Bob Orton by heading over to 80swrestlingcon.com. And uh, next week's episode, Jay, uh, next week's going to be a real fun one. Uh, Mark it down your calendars now, everyone, because next Thursday, right here on 80s Wrestling, the podcast, we're going to dive into the history of Saturday night's main event. What an exciting topic, Tommy, because that show was instrumental in so many of the biggest angles that we love from this era. That show played such an amazing part. Um, There was never a bad episode of that show, so I'm excited to go through it talk history with you, talk some of our favorite matches, some of our favorite storylines. That is going to be an amazing show. Absolutely. And, and then the following Thursday, we will have uh, to celebrate Virtual Mania that Sunday. Uh, the following week's show is going to be the history of Jake the Snake Roberts in the WWF. That's going to be interesting. <laughs> The man who Craig DeGeorge just said was Jake Roberts in and outside of the ring. The guy who Craig said 
Damien scared the living you-know-what out of. Jake the Snake Roberts. That's our topic two weeks from today. That is going to be an incredible show to talk about, Jake. Absolutely, man. And and this week, me and Jay are going to sit down and uh, work on uh, some more episodes so you can kind of get a calendar of events uh, and, and, and dates to look forward to. I know that uh, Bruce Pritchard uh, does that with his podcast. They'll announce a bunch of topics uh, in advance. So I, I like that concept. I like you guys having something to look forward to. But uh, the next two weeks you, you have, you can mark it down the calendar. Next Thursday will be the History of Saturday Night's main event. And then the following Thursday, Jake the Snake Roberts. Two extremely interesting topics we're going to cover right here on 80s Wrestling, the podcast. Also, Jay, uh, I want all the listeners out there to head over to our 80s Wrestling Instagram page, at 80s Wrestling. Within the next few days, we will have the big announcement of the opening of our uh, wrestling store in New Jersey, the Wrestling Collector. Uh, I'm about to uh, finalize the date today or uh, tomorrow, so I don't want to say, I mean, I'm 99% sure what the day is going to be. I don't want to say it 100% just in case there's a change, but uh, if you head over to our Instagram page, at 80s Wrestling, in the next day or two, we will drop the opening date announcement there. Extremely excited for the store. Anyone that lives in the New Jersey area, it's not going to be a wrestling store, it's going to be a wrestling destination. Uh, you're going to love it. I can't wait for you guys all to see it. And uh, again, it uh, should be announced within the next day or two. It could be coming as early as tonight, the announcement. So uh, make sure you check our Instagram page uh, later tonight or tomorrow. And uh, again, make sure you follow Wrestling Then and Now on Instagram, one of our favorite Instagram pages that we visit daily. And if you're interested in possibly sponsoring an upcoming episode of 80s Wrestling, the podcast, shoot us a message on uh, Instagram or Twitter at 80s Wrestling underscore, or you can email us at 80s Wrestling Picks at gmail.com. That's 80s Wrestling, P-I-C-S, at gmail.com. Also, feel free to use that email address or any of those social media platforms to uh, give us feedback on the show, drop us suggestions, and let us know what you would like to talk about. And uh, I'm enjoying this so far, Jay, man. I'm really, really enjoying this. It's been a, it's been a fun ride. Uh, we're only about 10 episodes in. We've covered some great stuff already. Future shows are just going to get bigger and better. And so I'm just happy to be along for the ride with you and with all the wrestling fans who love 80s wrestling. Absolutely, man. And uh, until next week, everyone have a great weekend. Uh, please share our uh, our podcast with your friends. Please post it on your social media. Uh, the more mentions of it and the more promotions to it, uh, the better and the more people that will be able to listen to it. I would love to come back here next week and announce that we have broke the top 10 for the most listened to pro wrestling podcasts. Let's do it together. We're a team. Until next week, have a great week, and we'll see you next week right here on 80s Wrestling, the podcast.